I remember every little thing as if it happened only yesterday. I was barely 17, and I once killed a boy with a Fender guitar. I don't remember if it was a Telecaster or a Stratocaster, but I do remember that it wasn't at all easy. I don't remember if it was a Telecaster or a Stratocaster. The guitar bled for about a week afterwards, but it rung out beautifully, and I was able to play notes that I had never even heard before. The blood of the guitar was soup, dark and rich, like wild berries. The blood of the guitar was chuck, berry red. So, I took my guitar, and I smashed it against the wall! I smashed it against the floor! I smashed it against the body of a varsity cheerleader! I smashed it against the hood of a car! I smashed it against the 1981 Harley Davidson! The Harley howled in pain! The guitar howled in heat! Slowly, I started climbing up the foot of the stairs, right up to the bedroom where Mommy and Daddy were sleeping. I opened the door, silently walking up to the foot of their bed. Mommy and Daddy were sleeping in the moonlight. Door is locked. Door is locked. So I raised my guitar high above my head, and just as I was about to bring the guitar, crashing down the, upon the center of the bed, my father woke up screaming, STOP! Wait a minute! What do you think you're doing, boy? That's no way to treat an expensive musical instrument! And I said, GOD DAMN IT, DADDY! You know I love you, but you've got a hell of a lot to learn about rock and roll! Ever since I caught my first ride, hitchhiking has been a love of mine. Although I believe in the strength of community, sometimes it can also act as a cultural sinkhole. Since community is almost always based on similar interest, I sometimes find myself drowning in a chorus of predictably similar thoughts. As an escape from that life growing stale, hitchhiking is a great way to brighten my eyes. The next ride is always completely random, an unpredictable unknown. Almost certainly, this person will not be a standard acquaintance. This is a person who has thoughts, theories, and philosophies that do not coincide with your community, but those thoughts may coincide with your life. And what a uniquely opportunistic social situation for conversation. Here you are, alone, for perhaps hours at a time, with someone that you would never even meet under ordinary circumstances. I loved every ride, but I could never fully relate their thoughts, life philosophies, and personalities to other people. I started working on this project as a more effective method of building a collective consciousness. The microphone in my hand was clearly an inorganic addition, and sometimes it served to stymie conversation altogether. Other times it acted as an invisible steganographer soaking up a wealth of words. Either way, even as a vignette, this is still a crude way of relating someone's spirit. Originally I intended these vignettes to act as a guide to different regions of the United States. Eventually, though, I became solely interested in the power of collecting many small individual contributions. I started with a short trip to L.A. before setting off across the United States, destined for everywhere and nowhere. I walked out to the I-80 University Street on-ramp and caught my first ride in four minutes. It was a half-ton pickup with suspension so stiff in the absence of a load that my seat felt like one of those magic fingers beds. 
This guy, Bruce, was a big scary survivalist who heads to the woods for weeks at a time with only a few breadcrumbs, John Muir style. When I first opened the door, he stared at me without expression while following my gaze to the huge hunting knife resting on the center divider. He casually picked it up and stashed it under his seat. I took Bruce to be a strong and isolated individual, but he turned out to have a wife and two children. When I asked what he was raising his children to be, he looked at me with steel-cold eyes and paused before staying. Staunch conservatives. He was expecting me to protest, to explode with indignation, but I didn't give any indication of disapproval. Unchecked, he slowly began his tirade against liberals and liberal ideology. With encouragement, he continued with his theory of how blacks and Mexicans are naturally inferior. Unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to get any of this on tape before he dropped me off at the I-5 interchange with parting words. Well, Mike, what we really need to figure all this out is a Friday night and a six-pack of beer, so maybe I'll see you out on the road again someday and pick you up. I waved goodbye and looked around. Even with the beautiful view of the California that I always hoped to find, I was in a bad spot without a lot of traffic. I thought I'd have a real hard time catching my next ride, but before I could stick my thumb out, the very next car stopped. The great thing about I-5 is that once you're on it, you almost certainly have a ride all the way to L.A., this guy, Richard, was a middle-aged psychoanalyst who told me great long stories about being a hippie in the 60s and running drugs across the country. He had a lot of interesting things to say. Um, I think one of the most difficult and sort of unappreciated problems that people have now is the amount and variety of distractions that are available to them. I don't think that most people realize that a lot of what they're doing involves distracting themselves in one way or another from things that are bothering them. They can be distracted away from thinking about them or distracted away from feeling them. But I think that a lot of um, a lot of topics or a lot of ideas in the society hinge on this. For example, there's so much entertainment, and I don't think that most times people are entertained as much as they are distracted by television, by movies. And then I think the idea of distraction also involves almost all of the different kinds of um, drugs that we use whether it be cigarettes, alcohol, sugar, or anything stronger. Um, I think oftentimes we're trying to alter the state that we're in, and oftentimes that's an attempt to alter away from some uh, unpleasant feeling or unpleasant thought that we're having. I think that as the country has become more and more prosperous, there are more and more kinds of distractions available to us, and I really don't think that people appreciate that so much of their life is spent uh, involved in doing that. Uh, I think that if people were to understand that and to reflect a little bit on the fact that there must be something going on from which they're trying to distract themselves, it would give people a different way of thinking about how to understand their lives and the way that they're living them. Another thing that struck me were his thoughts on his generation. When I asked him why he thought hitchhiking was so much easier in his youth, he said, well, of course, part of it is the perceived state of the world today. Everyone thinks the world is a very dangerous place. But another part of it is something I have a hard time conveying to people. I was a baby boomer. Before World War II, there were only 140 million people in the United States. Everyone went off to war, came back, and had kids. There were 90 million of us. The population of the United States almost doubled. When I was a kid, everyone was a kid. We were all in it together. When I was hitchhiking, another kid would see me and stop. It was pretty late when he dropped me off in Santa Monica, so I only wandered around for a little while before rolling my sleeping bag out on Venice Beach. It turns out that Venice Beach isn't the best place to camp. 
Sketchy characters hover around all night, and once I woke up to the deafening roar of a sand groomer a few feet away from my head. I had to jump up at the last minute for the driver to see me. Apparently, they groomed the beaches in the middle of the night, and I almost got groomed as well. I sat on the beach for a few days and enjoyed the warm weather. I met a lot of people before bumping into a vague acquaintance of mine, known as Paradox the Prime. She said she was headed up to Santa Cruz and that I should hitchhike with her on the way back. I didn't really know her that well, and it was only after we'd started off that I realized just how crazy she is. In fact, she's clinically insane. She gets a state disability check every month. She had absolutely no sense of direction, and her hitchhiking style was a little unorthodox. She'd often try to catch rides heading the wrong way, and instead of standing on the side of the road with her thumb out, she'd jump into the street, wait for traffic to skid to a stop, and then run up to the window of the first car with an insane look on her face. We had limited success. A nice kid picked us up and drove us a ways, and then even delivered Paradox's cell phone when she left it in his car. How she even had a cell phone, I'll never know. This guy's theory is that we're all like the clocksmiths of this world. It's our job to keep the earth turning. Uh, well, I guess the only philosophy I ever had in life, because I've had a lot of problems with philosophy and religion, it occurred to me in the shower one day, actually. I'd, I'd always sort of wondered, you know, the meaning of life and why people are here. And and I sort of thought I, I came up with the answer. And it was it was so simple to me that it almost, like, blew my mind that, the reason that we would be here is the reason that anything else is here. Uh, everything belongs to a big circle of life is sort of cliche, I guess, but, you know, like, uh, you know, the food chain and certain animals are there to feed other animals. And, and so it seems to me that the reason that humans would be on the earth is to keep things going because we can come up with so many you know, new ideas. We Rather than just killing other animals, we can grow our own plants and feed ourselves that way, and that's something that no other animal can really do. So it seems that, uh, if anything, we should just keep the world going as much as we can, which is something that a lot of people stray away from. But uh, if there would be a meaning to life, a purpose for us being here, that would seem to be it for me. We caught a number of short rides out of L.A., including a ride with a crazy repo man who'd lost his arm on the job. He showed us all kinds of equipment for stealing unpaid cars. A nice guy from Argentina took us away and played us some music from his hometown. Eventually, we caught a ride with a sad old guy who knows that the world can be a lonely place. Well, my name is Marshall, and I'm now in Camarillo, California, headed up, up the highway with these wonderful couple hitchhiking, and they asked me to explain something about my philosophy in life. Well, I can do that briefly. So I was telling them about this funeral that I went to back back in Ohio a couple of weeks ago, and some of my family members were were rude to me, and it really hurt. And I wrote a letter to my brother. And I explained it to him what I saw and how I felt about it, and how I'm dealing with that is uh, I am relying on my definition of spirituality to help me get on to the next moment. And this definition has always carried me through in times of pain, and that is to become indifferent. And that's my definition of spirituality. I thought that was a pretty strange definition of spirituality, but he maintained that he was able to influence his emotional self through intellectual resolve. Despite that, he got very sad as we talked about it, and he looked like he was about to cry. Meanwhile, Paradox had found some electric glow wire in her bag and was laying on the floor of his van, spinning it around in circles while shouting stuff like, It's a new parallel dimensional universe, man! Look at this! It's like like a new plane of existence! 
This very straight-looking guy is near sobbing, and Paradox is shouting, Do you have any pot? Do you have any pot I could smoke? It was a long trip, and Paradox's antics got us picked up by the cops three times before we finally made it to Santa Cruz. The last time was the most ridiculous. We got dropped off in front of the Hearst Castle on Highway 1. It was raining and starting to get late, so nobody was stopping. After about an hour, it became clear that we would have to walk to the next town. Of course, Paradox isn't traveling with a sleeping bag, much less a coat, long sleeve shirt, socks, or shoes. So I gave her my raincoat, warm socks, and was carrying her bag. Still, she decided that she wasn't capable of walking. Instead, she laid down in the middle of the highway as if to pretend that she was hurt. Cars were zooming by and skidding around her while I was trying to convince her that she was going to get run over. One car actually stopped, but then she jumped up and started running towards them, and the car peeled away. Sure enough, someone called the cops. I finally made it back to San Francisco and started my trip across the country. I bought an Amtrak ticket to Chicago, packed my bag, and headed for the train station. Of course, I neglected to pack any food. There was a dining car on the train, but the only vegetarian option was $13. I decided to fast for the three-day trip. I read Fitzgerald and lay paralyzed with hunger, watching scenes of America roll by. Chicago was a fun town, but so cold that the snot actually freezes inside your nose. I saw the blues and talked for hours with an interesting 61-year-old guy named Warren. Um, what I've been thinking about uh, lately is, is not thinking. And uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I have a sponsor. And he told me a couple years ago I thought too much. And I, I couldn't understand that. Today I'm reading a book uh, called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And it's about how to live in the moment by not thinking about yesterday or worrying about tomorrow. Um, my, um, what I'm working on is, is overcoming selfishness and self-centeredness. And uh, it's not easy. Um, but people like me, uh, Brad Deepak Chopra says uh, you have to find your talent and how to use that to help other people. And um, as simple as that sounds, it's never been easy for me uh, because I'm wrapped up in myself. I took a quick trip to Memphis before heading to Chapel Hill, North Carolina for an Against Me show. Now, I've taken Greyhound many times before, and each time I've sworn never to write it again. But for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea to take the bus to Chapel Hill, since I was concerned that I might miss the show if I hitchhiked. I regretted the decision as soon as I bought my ticket. The bus to Knoxville was two hours late, so I was in the Memphis station until 2 a.m. I was the last one to board the bus, so I got the seat that nobody else wanted, next to the sketchy guy with the tuberculosis grade cough and cold sweats. I changed buses in Knoxville and ended up sitting behind a lady with an outrageously big hickey on each side of her neck. It almost looked as if someone had hit her with a baseball bat. She explained that she's married, but the hickeys were from the new love of her life in Knoxville, so now she's planning on leaving her husband and taking her children to live with the new love. This guy was also married, but his wife left him when he went to jail for shooting his nephew for stealing drugs from him. Of course, her husband doesn't know anything about this and is also picking her up at the station. So she's trying to conceal the hickeys by borrowing makeup from other writers and trying different hickey concealment tricks that everyone suggests. Um, I'm in love with someone besides my husband, and I have some hickeys that I need to get rid of before my husband sees, and if um, he sees them, he's probably going to beat my ass. So um, I put makeup on it, and now I have orange around my neck. It looks like a hickey inside a hickey. Everyone says it looks like I have a rash. And then we stopped in the town of Morganton, where there's a large mental hospital and corrections facility. Sure enough, four just-released crazies get on the bus, followed by four just-released convicts. Combine them with the usual cast of characters on Greyhound, and you've got trouble. 
Eventually, the girl with the hickeys got off the bus, and we all watched in awe as she hugged her husband hello. The whole bus was plastered up against the window, ex-cons and all, waiting to see what would happen. She did a pretty good job of concealing the hickeys, but there's no way he didn't eventually notice. The first night I was in Chapel Hill, I met Christina, who manages the local independent bookstore. She lives in Durham, but she arranged for me to stay at her friend Phil's house in Chapel Hill. We drank to the cold weather in a friend's bar, then played some pool in a place called Hell. Phil's house was a place for homemade soaps, a living room with a giant granite rock coming through the floor, and a morning of warm bagels over live accordion. I left for a morning of snow, sleet, and more snow. The haiku for that day was, Icy roads, cold heart pumps slush through my veins, snowstorm in my shoes. The Against Me show was that night, and I met some kids there who were in a similar situation. We ended up having to stay at the local shelter after the show, since it was way too cold to spend the night outside. That's a rough memory of sleeping on a urine-scented linoleum floor under a noisy water fountain surrounded by a sea of home bums. After our short, jarring sleep and 5 a.m. wake-up call, the collectively reactionary objective was to get the hell out of Chapel Hill and end up someplace warm. The whole town had shut down, though, so there was no real way to hitchhike out of there. We spent all morning worrying about where we were going to stay and what we were going to do. Eventually, we decided to forget about it and go sledding. We managed to climb into a cardboard dumpster and get some big cardboard pieces, then started walking through the UNC campus towards a big hill. Along with the way, we tried to convince people to take us to Florida. As we were walking across campus, a guy named Terrence started talking to us. We told him what we were up to and invited him to go sledding with us. We stopped at his friend's dorm room, and he announced, I found some hitchhikers. Can they stay here? So all of a sudden, we had a place to stay and food to eat. We were constantly introduced as Terrence's hitchhikers and taken to the UNC dining hall for a feast of epic proportions. We lined our pockets with fruit, bread, and vegetables for the journey ahead. One of the girls we were staying with, Tessa, had a lot of interesting thoughts. Escalators never break. They just turn into stairs. Then there was also the theory of masturbating the asexual puddle. Puddles can be a pain, as Rainy discovered earlier when she fell in one. So, but I was wondering how you could kill a puddle. Because... If a small child jumped in a puddle and splashed it, therefore scattering the puddle and decreasing each section of puddle's overall size, what what point does it really stop to be a puddle and become something else, like a drop or something? Because maybe a drop to me is a puddle to an ant, and therefore, in some sense, it would still be a puddle. And But if it did actually cease to be a puddle, does that mean that small children who jump in puddles are murderers? Or maybe if the child falls and drowns in the puddle, then the puddle is a murderer. But what if the child was actually helping the puddle to reproduce, some form of masturbating of the asexual puddle and of reproducing and spreading itself over a larger distance? I also liked the theory she had about losing your socks in the dryer. So she had two pretty interesting hypotheses here. One was that you know that you've lost a sock when you go to match up your socks after you've gotten your laundry back and you find that you have one extra sock, one sock that you don't have anything to match with. And so... A possibility is that your dryer is actually creating a sock, and that you didn't lose anything. It's just creating an extra sock. Another hypothesis is that you are actually losing a sock, but the universe has a waste-not-want-not philosophy, so the rings of Saturn are actually composed of these missing socks. Friday morning, we set off for Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, where we hoped to catch a Florida-bound train. Hitchhiking with four people didn't seem feasible, so we split up. Sarah came with me, and Renee went with Matt. Sarah and I had the best ring of rides I've ever known. We never spent more than two minutes with our thumbs out, and we made it all the way to Rocky Mountain in four rides. The last ride we caught was the most absurd. We were standing out on 64 in a bad spot, trying to catch traffic two lanes over. 
In no time at all, we heard a distant whistling and turned to see that some guy had seen us from a mile away and stopped a mile down the road. Where are y'all headed? Rocky Mount. Hail, that's where I'm going. Hop in. This guy sold meat door-to-door to support his quarter-ounce-a-day pot habit. The only thing I'm afraid of is law. The law? Yeah, law. He dropped us off right at Key Foods, which was our rendezvous point. Matt and Renee didn't have such great luck, so Sarah and I were stuck outside the Key Foods all day. We were so cold that we even tried to build a fire with limited success. The rain didn't help. We got to Key Foods at 1.30, and the rest of our party showed up at 6 p.m. Matt and Renee even had to walk the last eight miles. We headed over to the train yard. It was 10 degrees, and my feet were so cold that I couldn't tell where the earth ended and I began. The visible vapor of my breath carried on for miles before dissipating. We clung to the cold ground of the rail embankment, hiding from yard bulls and waiting for a train that might never come. We were hiding in the woods between some drug dealers and the rails. Eventually, the drug dealers noticed us and were none too pleased with our presence. You guys can't be here. You'll get shot. Who's going to shoot us? Do I look like I'm kidding? Right. We moved up the yard and continued waiting. Eventually, a junker southbound train rolled in. As soon as we heard the brakes air out, we were running. Our feet crunched along the gravel as we sprinted down the line. Tanker, grainer, tanker, tanker, boxcar, sealed. Tanker, grainer, boxcar, sealed, boxcar, sealed. Crap, 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 no rideable cars. Boxcar, sealed, boxcar, open. We threw our stuff in, hammered a railroad spike in the door, and hid in the back corner of the car. Unfortunately, both doors were open, so we had a hell of a time hiding from all possible angles. Eventually, the slack action jolted us, and we were moving. We watched the nighttime scenery roll by and gazed at the clear night sky. The temperature on a moving boxcar was even lower, so we had to get into our sleeping bags. Even then, we were freezing, and we had to constantly get out and hide as we passed through switching yards. Once we thought we were screwed when we woke up and the train had stopped in the middle of the woods. Just as we noticed, a cop drove by real slow in his truck. It seemed impossible that he wouldn't have seen us, but eventually we started moving again without any trouble. When we woke up in the morning, after a night of almost freezing to death, we were in an unknown switching yard surrounded by strings of cars. We debated on what to do until we saw a brakeman walking down our string. We tried to hide, but it was no use. He found us and laughed. Hail, y'all are in the receiving line. Outbound trains are over there. Let me take you over to my truck and we'll see what we've got going south. He pointed us towards the number nine train and we searched it for rideable cars. There were no open box cars and not enough grainers, so we ended up climbing into a bucket. Eventually they hitched up a unit and we were off. This was a slow, cold ride and we couldn't help but stick our heads out the top of the bucket and watch the scenery roll by. Someone in one of the towns we passed saw us and called us in. They stopped the train outside a lumber mill to search us, and it was too late to jump off by the time we figured out what was happening. Finally, we heard someone climbing the ladder, and a true South Carolina cop poked his head up the, over the side. He smiled with a cigar in his mouth. Well, well, well. Y'all best come down and talk to me. We threw down all our stuff and climbed out. He had us line up against his car while he searched our pockets and questioned us. When he'd confiscated all our weapons, he had us throw our stuff in the back of another cop's pickup so we can pile into his car on the way to the station. When we walked over to the other cop's pickup, we were shocked to see a giant deer carcass with no head sitting in the bed. For a second, we stood with open mouths until the other cop announced, Y'all ain't never seen one of those electronic decoy deer before? Apparently, he sets this up on the side of the road and waits for people to shoot at it as they drive by. This happens fairly regularly, according to him, and then he arrests them. Isn't that entrapment? I asked. Yep, probably. No one done challenged it, though. At the station, they questioned us for hours. The arresting officer kept threatening us with a 10-year jail sentence and a $10,000 fine, mandatory minimum. 
Yep, I've got to decide what to do. Federal trespassing is a 10 and 10 minimum. Yep, what shall we do? Basically, they really liked us and got a kick out of talking to us. By the end, they had everybody in the station sitting in the questioning room listening to our stories. Eventually, they drove us to the county line and set us loose. One guy even gave Matt a pack of cigarettes. That was after Matt had stolen several from a pack someone had left in the office. Now you guys go that way, you hear? Do not come back into Chester County. We walked a few miles up the road to a gas station, then hitched a ride up to Jonesville, South Carolina. We wanted to make it up to Spartanburg so we could hitch down I-85 to Atlanta. We had to spend the night in Jonesville, though, so we decided to sleep on the roof of the Piggly Wiggly. We walked around back and piled a bunch of pallets up to about nine feet high, then climbed up the pallets and boosted each other the remaining nine feet to the roof. It was really nice on the roof. It wasn't too cold and the sky was clear. We settled down for a nice night's rest under the stars. I even took most of my clothing off and crawled into my sleeping bag with only my long underwear. I woke up sometime in the middle of the night, freezing, shivering, and encased in ice. A fog had rolled in, then the temperature had dropped, and the fog had frozen over. Everything was covered in a layer of ice, including the clothes that I had just taken off. I was totally screwed and borderline hypothermic. I couldn't stop shaking, so Madden packed his emergency blanket and I put it in my sleeping bag. That stopped my shivering, but I still couldn't feel my feet at all. Finally, the sun came up and we managed to get out of our sleeping bags and off the roof without injury. Quite an operation. We booked it across the street to the open Hardee's, where we started to warm up. It turned out that this Hardee's was the Hardee's of good fortune. While we were sitting there, some old folks walked over and asked if we had enough money to eat. They bought us breakfast and then gave us another 20 bucks. As we were eating, another guy asked us where we were headed. When we told him Atlanta, he said, Hail, that's only a three-hour drive. I'll take y'all. So we hopped in his Mustang and set off. This guy had been run over by a car in the Marines and had suffered some head trauma. He was in a coma for 19 days and had lost a lot of impulse control. So he was a little strange. We raced other cars on the highway at 130 miles an hour. Whenever Matt fell asleep, this guy would swerve across three lanes of traffic, hit the brakes, and hold down his horn. Hail, did you see that, dear? That was a damn pointer, damn, just running across the highway like that. Matt was always amazed. Oh, man, I, I missed it. I was asleep. I don't, I don't know. Sure enough, this guy dropped us off in Atlanta, turned around, and drove back. I never really liked going back to Atlanta. I grew up there, so it feels like when I visit my kindergarten classroom. Everything's just so much smaller. This time, I tried to live as I would at this point in my life. Usually, I end up doing all the things I know to do, but those are a part of my past life. I don't even like pizza anymore. Why would I sit in Fellini's? But it still sucked. We went to some local shows, discovered the Flying Biscuit, and played Gorilla Golf. But really, we were just waiting to leave. We saw the Against Me show, and that got us going. We set off the next morning without any keys in our pockets. Following Alan's bad advice, we hopped the MARTA turnstile and rode all the way to the airport. Discovering that there was no way to walk to I-75, we had to hitchhike at the airport exit, which is not the best spot. One of the hotel shuttle guys picked us up and got us on to 85 North. Eventually, Sarah and I caught a ride in a pickup and split off from Matt and Renee, with plans to meet up again in Gainesville, Florida. The next ride we caught was to Tifton with a guy who had a tricked-out low-rider pickup with tinted windows and one of those sound systems with a subwoofer that shakes the car. At first it was kind of like one of those magic fingers beds, but then my head started to rattle. In Tifton, we caught a ride with the most irresponsible mother ever into Alton. This lady was alone in the car at night with her 12-year-old daughter and her 12-year-old daughter's 12-year-old friend. I walk up to the side. Now, y'all ain't gonna shoot us or nothing, are you? Uh, no, we don't shoot people. See, Jessica, I told you'd be all right. These girls were petrified. It was warm in Alton, but it looked like it was going to rain, so we tried our much-talked-about hotel scam. 
I went into the office of a day's inn alone and asked about the rates, etc., then asked to see the room. The guy gave me a key, so I walked outside and Sarah snuck up behind me. I opened the room, she went in and hid, and then I went back to the office. I inquired about the rates of other nearby hotels, then said I'd go look at the Super 8. I went outside and hid down the road for a while to make sure the attendant wasn't going to check the room. After about ten minutes, I snuck back over and Sarah opened the door for me. We woke up refreshed, went over to the Hardee's for some egg biscuits, and caught a ride to Valdosta with a fireman. Finally, we caught a ride all the way to Gainesville with a registered nurse who wanted us to find some pot for him. The haiku for that day was, Sun's hand on my face, thaws my smile, and pushes me south. The first thing we did when we got to Gainesville was take off our long underwear. We'd beaten Matt and Renee again, so we walked through the town and took naps in the sun while we waited. It was immediately apparent that Gainesville is a great town. Warm weather, Spanish moss, and every tree is perfect for a treehouse. We met a nice guy named Jeff at the Gainesville Info Shop, who told us we could stay with him at the Trouble House. After Matt and Renee showed up, our first night in town was absolutely crazed, drunken debauchery at the Trouble House. Flaming Dr. Peppers and everyone jumping on the couches like maniacs while screaming along to punk rock as people slide down the staircase in drunken heaps on couch pillows or even a whole mattress, ducking people setting off fireworks inside the house and everybody all the while making out with everybody, because that's how strong friendship can be. Mad fire dancing and drumming in the street under stars that blur and leave trails, and then everyone is piling into Jerry's pickup so the twelve of us are hanging out and carrying on, surfing on the roof of the cab as we drive to the Ark for another great show. I would stagger out into the warm morning and say hello to the sun, nap under big branches of sadness, and swing slowly on the tire swing. People would say, you guys can't leave, and I'd say, why would I leave? I'm from Gainesville. We started squatting in an unoccupied house on 3rd Avenue, next to the auto house and across the street from the trouble house. We got carpet scraps out of the carpet dumpster and patched them together into a wall-to-wall carpet. We would talk and carry on at night until the last candle burned out. We'd eat granola, sleep on the floor, and wake up to sunny days. Now, I really dislike violent and individualist anarchists. These are the kids who scream anarchy and steal from big companies, but are secretly happy those big companies exist so that they have someone to steal from. The anarchist who doesn't care about anyone but himself or herself is the worst kind of capitalist. Not only will they exploit you if they can, they'll kill you if they can. One day, Matt ran into an old-time friend of his from Massachusetts, Harry, who was traveling with his girlfriend, Megan, and their dog, Dandruff. Matt told them that they could stay with us, but after talking with them for a while, I could tell that they're the type of traveling kids I don't like. I hoped they wouldn't stay long. That night we were playing cards and drinking in our squat, but this kid Harry is drinking like a maniac. He's chugging huge bottles of wine like he wants to kill himself. After a while he starts going nuts and screaming psychobabble like he just smoked a lot of pot or took some acid. We're all looking at each other and wondering what the hell is wrong with this kid when he starts to get belligerent. He's screaming bloody murder and puking in the middle of the street, in front of the house that we're illegally occupying. For some reason, Megan's out there with him, caught up in his belligerent psycho-nonsense. All the auto house kids got weirded out and took off, while the rest of us are trying to get Matt to deal with the situation. Matt tries to calm him down in the street, but Harry comes right back inside and starts screaming at us about how he'll kill us all, that he doesn't give a shit about anyone, that he's the sleeping bag slasher. Meanwhile, their dog has run away. Eventually, it seems like Matt has gotten them calmed down, so they're settling down to sleep in the front room as we're settling down to sleep in the back room. Matt comes back and says everything's cool. Then he adds, but that dog is gone. We all kind of chuckle. Seriously, he said, when a dog takes off like that, it's not coming back. We all kind of chuckle some more, then close our eyes. Fifteen seconds later, Harry and Megan come running into our room and start kicking the shit out of me. I was in my sleeping bag, so my arms were pinned inside. Harry was sitting on top of me while he slugged away. Harry screams, talk shit, I'll fucking kill you, and Megan joins in. We'll fucking kill you, motherfucker. I managed to wrestle him off me and get out of my sleeping bag, but then they're both punching at me against the wall. 
Matt, Sarah, and Renee are completely motionless, open-mouthed, shocked. I didn't want to get into a full-blown fist fight. I didn't want to hit anybody. I didn't want to hurt anybody. But I also knew that I couldn't, couldn't let them beat me to a pulp, so I decided that if I pulled my knife out, they'd have to back away. I pulled my knife out of my long johns and thumbed it open. I hoped its click would make them step back. I hoped that the momentary glint of light off its blade would make them step back. And finally, I hoped that swinging it around behind me as I turned would make them step back. They jumped back just as Matt finally jumped in to stop them. But then Megan has her knife out and is up against Matt swinging wildly at me through threats to slip my throat. All because Matt made a joke about their dog being gone. Megan looks ready to kill me by now and I'm thinking, oh crap, I'm going to have to cut this girl when Matt's shouts finally make it through the noise. It was me. Calm down. He didn't even say anything. Calm the fuck down. They yelled a little bit more about how they didn't care about anyone and that they'd kill me in a second. Then they finally started to calm down. Finally, Matt got them back into the other room, but he wasn't open to the idea of making them sleep outside. I decided that if anyone was going to get stabbed in the middle of the night, it should be Matt, so I switched my sleeping bag with his and tried to sleep. I gave up on dealing with Harry and Megan the next day and left to stay at the Rat Trap. Jeff was moving to Athens, so we decided that I'd ride up with him the next day. That night, we said goodbye to Jeff by dumpstering 117 donuts from the Krispy Kreme and making a giant donut tower. It was an absolute work of art with expertly arranged colors and impeccable structural integrity. For some reason, earlier that day, we'd been entertaining ourselves by throwing stuff off the roof of the rat trap. When it became clear that nobody could put a dent in the donut tower, we decided to throw it off the roof. At first, I was hesitant, saying, wait a minute, guys, art was not meant to fly. But then I realized, wait, art is meant to fly. We decided that as long as it was going to fly, of course it should be on fire as well. I got some of the white gas that I travel with for fire dancing and doused it on the tower. Neil was holding it, and unfortunately I spilled some on him too. When Jerry lit it, Neil also went up in flames. We all clamored to put him out laughing and fell over. Looking up, there were still donuts burning in the street. The next day, Jeff and I set off with the truck he borrowed from his father. Some friends from a band in Gainesville were going on tour that day, and their first stop was also Athens. Jeff's parents live outside of Atlanta, so the plan was to spend that night in Athens and then travel on to Atlanta the next day. It was a beautiful drive, but I was sad to be leaving Gainesville. Sarah and Renee were going back to North Carolina, and Matt was going all the way back to Massachusetts. Here I was, going backwards, traveling through already distant memories of on-ramps and towns that we struggled through to reach Gainesville, the aphrodisia that we'd felt in the cold Chapel Hill snow so long ago. Florida faded slowly into Georgia, and with it came the cold night and everything else I thought I'd left behind. They didn't know what else to do Nothing was planned for the afternoon The only way I knew how The best way to do it I looked at the fire And then looked right through it Sweaters unwelcome Hours unscheduled Water hit embers But miles were left scorched I thought it'd be fun At least I'm not sorry I worked on the mud And I This heat gets unbearable. I want to be swimming. I'd like to be floating. Not walking or running. Not walking or running. I want to be swimming. I'd like to be floating. Not walking or running. Not walking or running.
far away. Some are suffocating in a three-room house. The tangerines will sing about falling on the ground burns. So write a message out on this body of mine, this vessel of scar tissue, you, 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 be consumed as a fireball, you, 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 should remember better, so give me boots of Spanish leather. I want to be swimming, I like to be floating, not walking or running. and the show was great. The following day I talked for a while with a really interesting guy who was on tour with Avid Ant Construction before everyone left for the next town. Okay, so this is what I've been thinking about. I was thinking about it yesterday whenever we were driving um, here and uh, well I've been thinking about it for a while but so I've been thinking about like how like looking at like my or looking at life and like trying to like look at life like really up close like um like how we spend our time like every day and like what we do with every like moment of our lives and like trying to like examine that really closely in my own life and like figure out like what things I'm doing that are good and important and meaningful and like mean something worthwhile and like folk get make that more happen more and then figure out the things that like aren't important and that suck and get rid of those things so I've been thinking about like looking like really up close at life like like as even getting down to like every second like if if like every moment of life can be meaningful in some way and trying to find the meaning and or like importance and like even really mundane things so i've been thinking about this in like terms of like a flip like a giant flip book like if life were like a flip book um where like every second were like a page of the flip book and you could like flip through each page and like as each moment happens it becomes like a page of this like giant flip book that you can like flip through and see like where you've been and what you've done but like you you don't necessarily know like what the next page of the flip book is going to be but like i guess i'm trying to like i'm interested in like making making flip books that like somehow kind of try to do this like in like real actual flip books that like examine the the like revolutionary possibilities of like the everyday things that we do all the time um and like may i guess maybe somehow by like looking at the pages from the past like figure out a better way to get to a better spot in the future of what the future the flip book will eventually be he also told me about this project he was working on where he wanted to go through chapel hill and sketch home bums faces um guys just on the street and while he was sketching them he would have them sing or hum a, a note like a specific note like you know you would you would hum c sharp and then once he has all these sketches and the notes um, he wants to build an installation where it's sort of a room of all the sketches with a little speaker under them and the note looping so you walk into this room and there's this harmony of of voices 
and the the faces that go along with those notes as well. Jeff and I set off for Atlanta, but halfway there, the truck completely broke down. I thought that was really ironic, because here I'd finally gotten a legitimate ride, and I ended up having to hitchhike anyway. We finally made it to Duluth, where Jeff's parents live, and he gave me a ride into town. I felt really bad, because it had already been a long day, and now Jeff had to go back with his father and deal with a broken truck full of everything he was moving. A few days later, Jeff told me what happened when he went back. He learned a little bit more about his father that night. When they got to the truck, there was a cop waiting. It turns out that his father had gotten two DUIs that year, and the state has suspended his license. It also seems that when the state takes your license, they take any plates that are registered to you, which is strange because the truck we were driving had plates on it. So not only did Jeff have to deal with a broken truck, but his father went to jail that night for stealing a license plate off some random van. In Atlanta, I met up with my friend Kristen, who was driving across the country, and I rode with her all the way to Massachusetts. We stopped in Philadelphia one night and met a really nice kid, Sonia, at the anarchist bookstore. We stayed at her place and talked all night after helping some other kids we met celebrate a 21st birthday. Well, recent, recently my studies have been focused around community and what it means to um, live communally and how that relates to global politics and problems in the world and, and working towards social justice. And um, my, and as an educator, I feel that that happens uh, very centrally around um, in, in what we explicitly call learning environments. So not just learning that happens on a daily basis, but learning environments that we've constructed as such. Um, and I really feel very strongly that one of the biggest problems with globalization, besides the you know obvious oppression that people experience because of it in sweatshops and in um, you know and through violence and um, through economic violence and all these other things, is that um, communities have been fractured so that. Uh, People, the the social social safety nets that people used to form um, around sort of shared responsibilities and shared decision making and um, like tribal or village tribal affiliations or village like communities have been decimated by globalization by economic globalization and this represents a humongous problem for all of us because um, we sort of rely more heavily on outward um, sort of. Out, outward validation of ourselves like um, the mainstream media, which then feeds us more messages that lead us to buy into this economic globalization that's destroying our lives. And we also um, hook onto a consumerist mentality that really makes us um, want to, to find that validation and um, a sense of belonging and a sense of self and um, a, just a sense of connectedness through um, buying things and through owning things, which of course plays into the, our um, resistance to letting go of, of capitalism and of these systems that end up being very repressive and um, subjugate us kind of constantly and in every arena and kind of in every facet of our lives. So. Um, Anyway, I, I see community and building strong communities and like building sort of participatorily democratic communities um, as a really positive response um, to this problem. And I think that that can happen very well, or a really good place to start with that is through educational institutions, um, to make educational institutions more collectively run and 
really about um, allowing people to connect and to find ways to address social justice issues together um, and in, in ways that um, are not about just about resisting something, but they're also about building things and um, sort of exploring a spirituality that uh, that is how that like sort of speaks to how we are all naturally connected and the connections that we that we seek out in each other, and that is what I've been thinking about for the last few years, and that's what I will probably continue to be thinking about for the rest of my life, hopefully. We finished the drive, and I stayed in Massachusetts for a few days. The cold was appalling, though, and I left for New York, where I stayed with my friend Susan. Um, I'm unemployed, and I've been cleaning up my house a lot because I want everything to be clean and, like, starting over again. And I've been, like, scrubbing the walls and cleaning off the light switches to make everything, like, really white to get rid of all the grime. And it was just Chinese New Year, and so I was, like, a new start, so I'll clean up everything on Chinese New Year. And then I got an email from my mom, and she was, like, don't do any work on Chinese New Year because anything you do will be, like, the whole year I paid all my bills and I swept. And she said, whatever you do, don't sweep because we all away all the good luck away. You can mop. So I swept away all my good luck. It seemed that everywhere I went, it was almost too cold to survive. And somehow I found that I had been gone for three months. I missed San Francisco and the community that I climbed out of so long ago. The fog was still waiting for me. Thanks for listening to my CD. You roared into the driveway of our southwestern ranch style house on a new Kawasaki, all yellow and black, fresh out of the showroom. Our house faced west, so the big orange sun positioned at your back lit up your magnificent silhouette how much better how much better could my life get 900 cubic centimeters of raw whining power no outstanding warrants for my arrest whoa 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 the pirate's life for me around you I sank my face into your hair and then I inhaled as deeply as I possibly could you were sweet and delicious as the warm desert air and you pointed your headlamp toward the horizon we were the one thing in the galaxy god didn't have his eyes on 900 cc's of raw whining power no outstanding warrants for my arrest hi diddle dee dee god damn the pirate's life for me